Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The Other Hand a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Welcome, everybody, uh, to our latest podcast. Uh, We had promised each other if not our listeners, that this one would be a COVID-free zone. We know that we've talked and indeed written a lot about coronavirus over the last couple of weeks. We hope for obvious reasons, and we know that it's attracted a lot of interest. And um, our numbers and, in particular, feedback on all the stuff that we've written and said about coronavirus has attracted a lot of attention. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your comments. And we hope that uh, in one way or another we have responded to them. We thought that we would try and move away from COVID today, and indeed we will. We've got a couple of other things that have been going on this week that we think are absolutely fascinating. But we're going to start with Jim. Uh, I think he wants to have a little bit of a COVID rant about some developments that have taken place over the last 24 hours that is uh, occupying many a headline today. So over to you, Jim. Hi, Chris. Uh, How's it going? Great to be back again recording another podcast Um, As you know, on April 5th, the current level of restrictions are up for review, and there's obviously a lot of speculation at the moment about what might or might not happen. Um, My feeling would be that nothing significant will happen, that it'll be a little bit like, as a friend of mine said to me last night, it'll be a little bit like the annual budget. There's going to be a little bit in there for everybody to try and appease the political pressure. But at the end of the day, you know, with the cases stuck at 500 a day and very, very unwilling to go down, it's it's hard to see how it's going to change that dramatically. So that's a piece of bad news, definitely. And I think another impact was seen this week. The ESRI came out with its latest quarterly economic commentary. And it is for, well, the bit that struck me most forcibly was its forecast of 15,000 housing completions this year and 16,000 next year because of COVID restrictions on the construction industry. Um, That is less than half of the annual requirement. So there's another element 
of the costs that COVID is imposing on the economy. So I really, really do think we need to think a lot more about cost-benefit analysis on the whole restrictions regime, but that's probably for another day. The thing that uh, caught my attention today and um, I suppose angered me um, in quite a significant way was the story that the Beacon Hospital had 20 excess AstraZeneca um, vaccines on hand and they contacted a local, well, it's not that local, it's 13 kilometers away, uh, a private school, St. Gerard's in Bray, and they told 20 teachers there to get up as quickly as possible and administer vaccines. Um, this is, I, I, I think, um, an, an, an incredible story for, for, for many, many reasons, because uh, Beacon Hospital has come out and apologized and admitted it has made a mistake and admitted it went against the HSE protocols. So clearly what they did was wrong in the spirit of how vaccines are being delivered. But what really got me about it was that it just feeds into this narrative about us all being in this together. We're certainly not all in this together. What we saw there was a private hospital giving um, vaccines to a private school 13 kilometers away while we had other schools within yards hundreds of yards of the hospital so very very strange decision and i think what it's going to do and it, it does relate to the review of the level five restrictions next week uh i i think it just further serves to build into people's disillusionment about the way this process is operating um i think it's going to say send out another message to people that this is bull you know some people are doing what they need to do. Others are not doing it. So I think from a communications and a PR perspective, this is an absolute disaster for the government's whole handling of COVID-19 and the way in which society is reacting to that. So I, I think a very, very bad day. Um, I have been accused on social media of totally overreacting to this today. But I think anybody who understands leadership and communications and how they have failed us so badly over recent months, we'll see today as another nail in the coffin of Ireland's fight against COVID. So uh, a, a pretty dreadful day. And it, it just also is a sense of elitism. And this will once again feed into the whole um, anti-establishment narrative that is so common around the world at the moment. So it's it's, it's just going to be soccer for... Um, the the more radical elements of our um, system. Yeah, I saw that too, that uh, it had attracted a lot of attention on social media, some serious, some not so serious. It's even um, elicited the interest of Rosso Carroll Kelly, the uh, um, alter ego of um, uh, a well-known Irish Times writer and and author of of many a book um, with that character at at, at the centre, Paul Howard. Um, um, and he said the biggest loser from all of this is not, um, I think he agreed with somebody who suggested the biggest loser is not going to be the government, but it's going to be Blackrock College and St. Michael's, um, uh, asking their own questions about this, but that, that, that verges on the facetious, of course. Um, in, in I, I'm not here to defend the government, but in fairness, Jim, I would say that it, it's in, in having a go at them for this, um, it clearly wasn't a government level decision, but, but government laid down or HSC laid down protocols 
not being followed is a serious matter. And so how the government deals with this now, I think, is going to be important. Yeah, and Chris, let, I've me, seen... let me interject here a second. I was not blaming the government. I was basically saying that this was another nail in the coffin of government strategy towards COVID. Um, what, what yeah. It was hospital management and not the HSE or anybody else, in my view, is to blame for this. But it is just so it's just so elitist and just shows such a removal from what's happening out there at the moment. Sorry for interrupting you, Chris. No, no, that's fine. I, I take the point that uh, your, your clarification, shall we, shall we say, that uh, it wasn't the government's fault and you're not pointing the finger. But I think that a finger will need to be pointed if they don't react in some appropriate way. I've seen one prominent uh, economist, a professor at UCD, su- suggesting that maybe this private hospital should cease to get any government public sector work going forward. And maybe even the board of um, uh, the hospital itself may have a think about uh, the quality of the management that it has reporting to it. But let's let's see how this one develops. Um, uh, hopefully that's it for COVID in this particular podcast. I know it's a subject that we're going to return to on many occasions. But now, as the old saying goes, now for something completely different. I, I drew your attention uh, the other day, actually, or the day before yesterday, to um, a wonderful article, at least in my book, a wonderful article in the FT, about, of all things, the Suez Canal. Now, I, I remember the look on your face, because we were on a video call when we did it, when I suggested you have a read of this article, uh, an eye roll, a, a, an expression that, on your face that said, what on earth is he going on about now? How on earth is the Suez Canal remotely interesting, indeed remotely relevant to what's going on around us. And I think you were pleasantly surprised, weren't you, Jim? Yeah, Chris, when I went and looked at uh, what you had recommended, I concluded to myself that Chris Johns is either incredibly bright or he's way too much time in his hands to be able to go and read stuff like this. Uh, but I, I would say both, Jim. I, <laughs> I would, would say, say both. both as well. I was absolutely <laughs> captivated by it, to be honest. The, the statistics are incredible. Um, I suppose my knowledge of the Suez Canal, and this says more about my geography than anything else, is based on Churchill's biography and the Suez Crisis at the time, okay? That's as far as I understood. And if somebody had asked me what length is the Suez Canal, I'd probably have said about 20 miles um, at the extreme. It's 120 miles long. So it's an incredible piece of infrastructure. But the statistics around it, and, and, and this, of course, is all in the context of the ship that has got stuck in the canal. And at the moment, there are 200 ships stranded at each side of the canal uh, be- because of this problem. But the, the statistics around it are absolutely extraordinary, in my view. 12% of global trade um, goes through the Suez Canal. So it's effectively the gateway between EU and Asian trade. So stuff like car parts going from Asian manufacturers to Europe and the UK uh, to be manufactured, there's a problem there. Stuff like coffee, there's a problem there. So you're talking about 12% of global trade. Um, You're talking about 1,550 ships per month. That's 50 a day. Um, It's almost 19,000 ships per year go through this 120-mile canal. And um, effectively, what has happened this week is that, you know, trade has grown to a standstill because of the ship, the Ever Given, which is Panamanian registered, uh, which is stuck in the canal at the moment. So 
uh, what really fascinates me about this is that a piece of infrastructure like that can have such a fundamental impact on global trade and particularly trade between Asia and the um, European Union. And the final point I would make is that the option for ships would be to go around the Horn of Africa. And it is estimated that for a full voyage, that would add $400,000 per sailing. I mean, th- the numbers are just mind-blowing. So I take my hat off to you, Chris, yeah. for pushing me in the direction of this. Well, I take my hat off to the author, a, a chap called Brendan Greeley, um, who is described in the FT as FT's part-time boat correspondent. I, su- I suspect that was somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it was an absolutely brilliant piece of writing, and I would urge anybody to have a look at it. It, it speaks to all of those things that you've just mentioned in terms of the stats, but it also um, goes into just how much the world relies on this kind of trade. You've, you've rehearsed some of the stats and the way in which container shipping has changed over the years. A lot of what we rely on with our long supply chains, of course, does rely on containers and we take it for granted. But one of the reasons why world trade is in the shape that it is, this fantastic thing that we have that we're able to source anything is because of containerization. We don't have men shoveling things men shoveling things out of holds of ships or, or cranes unloading ships anymore in the way that they used to. It's only been since the 1950s when some genius invented the standardized container. Um, there are only two sizes, is, is my understanding. But the mechanics, the hydro mechanics, if you like, of how ships go through this, uh, through this canal, which essentially is just a big ditch um, just, that was dug, uh, originally uh, owned by the British, actually, and it was, it's all to do with the way the wind was blowing and the fact that these uh, things have become absolutely enormous. One of the fascinating things, or at least fascinating to me, things that I've learned is that um, we've reached in engineering or scientific or both terms, the absolute length to which these ships can go now because of the constraints of the, uh, placed on these ships by the strength of steel and the strength of the wells that they can um, put all these plates together. They can't be made using current technology at least any longer. So they're being made wider. And that is part of the, the problem is, is just how wide these things are and how they move through the water and how the, the water gets displaced, the various forces um, that are then generated, particularly when it's going through a narrow canal. Um, and in open sea, the water can go under and around, but in the Suez Canal, it doesn't. It, it goes, um, it act, the forces act on the banks of the canal, reacting with the ship. And the Suez Canal is just a 24-meter deep ditch dug in the ground to let the ocean in. And you can model this mathematically. Um, they do it via um, uh, toy models in, in big tanks of water. Um, only a few years ago, these ships could, could contain at maximum 8,000 containers. The biggest ones today now take 25,000. This one had about 20,000 containers on, enormous numbers. And the way in which they've done it is that they've gone up and out. They can't go any longer, as I've suggested. So these things are now very, in nautical terms, very beamy. Um, they're very, very fat. Um, and, and it's the width that is causing the problem, is causing these hydrodynamic forces to act in peculiar ways. And the ship just essentially swiveled and it didn't ground, it banked. The, the front of the boat 
drove itself into the rocks that were armoring each side of the canal and the back of the boat got stuck in a similar way at the back and that's where it is at the moment now as you say that that meant that means that five billion of uh, trade in both directions every day just isn't happening and it speaks to these supply chains that are now so tight around the world we saw it with coronavirus and things like PPE we did we don't all this just-in-time inventory management means that when something like this happens we get supply shortages and if this thing stays stuck we are going to get supply shortages of, of various things as you say they could go around the Cape but that costs money and both time it adds an extra 10 days and has already raised questions about piracy off the coast of dodgy bits of Africa. So we, we have another indicator that, that global supply lines, perhaps all this just-in-time management has gone too far, and we will see something of it being brought back home, um, onshoring of economic activity. Um, as if we needed another reminder of that, I think that this provides us with yet another one. I don't think it's going to be a big deal longer term, but I think short term, we are going to see some stories about surprising things not appearing on the shelves. Um, and as you say, car parts are a big one. So this is something that um, is both fascinating in its own regard. It's a second Suez crisis, if you like, and is one well worth watching. Yeah, I was uh, kind of fascinated by what you're saying there about the whole supply chain. Um, I was trying to source a turbo trainer for my racing bike here in Dublin recently and impossible to get, and in fact, impossible to get all over the country, my research showed. And one of the reasons given is Brexit and the impact it's had on the supply chain. So I guess this is just another example of how fragile those supply chains are and how anything can actually blow them off course. I'm also mindful of my days working with you in Bank of Ireland when you generally slipped out of the office early on a Thursday afternoon to go sailing in Dunleary. Um, I'm just wondering, did you ever bank your boat down there in Dunleary back in those days? Um, a few, a couple of years ago, <laughs> a couple of years ago, Chris, um, a, a good friend of mine, Owen Fitzpatrick, who is in the wholesale Thai business, sent me a book and he said, you're really going to love this. And it was a book about shipping containers and the evolution of shipping containers. And it plays to the point you just made about the 1950s was when we got the first container and how it revolutionized the whole global trade picture. So it's, it, it is quite extraordinary. Yeah, and we do have lots of very obvious vulnerabilities now in that global supply chain. The whole Astra EU row over vaccines is partly to do with those global supply chains. People don't understand that these things are things these days, anything, aren't manufactured nationally anymore. They're manufactured globally with bits and pieces coming from all over the world. Where things are finally assembled is almost a, a, almost something that's a random variable. And thinking about them nationally is the wrong way to think about them. And I think um, all credit to Ireland for encouraging the EU to think in those terms rather than in terms of um, country-specific manufacturing capabilities they they just don't exist anymore but we've had the reminder if we needed one as i said that uh, these supply chains are incredibly tight and extremely vulnerable to the weakest link and we certainly have one in the suez canal today so should i be in the, the supermarket this evening to stock up on coffee 
car parts maybe Jim. car parts okay um, i think the coffee is more likely to be coming from the other part of the world from latin america rather than from asia but hey who knows um i wanted also to draw your attention to another um piece that uh, caught my eye this week that is very relevant to what we're thinking about um in terms of economic policy and what faces us in in the post pandemic world the FT has another marvellous writer called Martin Sanbu. He writes a lot of very good economics, and I would thoroughly recommend anything that he writes. And I generally agree with virtually everything that he does. But I thought this week he wrote something that was fascinating, partly because I disagreed with it, um, in which I thought he was cheerleading for the EU. He was bigging up their fiscal response and comparing it to Joe Biden's, something we've talked about. Joe Biden's done this massive fiscal stimulus in the United States. Europe has done, well, we think about in total about half what America has done. And if Biden gets his way and follows it up with another massive infrastructure spending bill, the gap is going to get even wider. Sanbu's point is that there's 750 billion euros on the way. Interestingly, he says he confirms what we suspect is that none of it has started to flow yet and it won't start flowing until the autumn. The way in which he's whitewashing that, in my opinion, is saying that that's great timing in that that's when all the pandemic relief programs, for example, pandemic unemployment in, in Ireland and other similar relief programs around the European Union at the moment are all due to be running off. So this will be great for replacement spending when this 750 billion starts to flow. And he says that the gap between the United States and Europe can be made up he hopes, he thinks, by national governments. He doesn't think the 750 billion is going to get any bigger, but he does think the overall fiscal response can be made more US-like by governments taking advantage of the other thing that's been announced recently, which is a further extension of the relaxation of the budgetary fiscal rules that all of us have to, all of us in, in the euro area have to abide by. And as you know, um, governments have been borrowing like crazy and busting all the old rules, um, and they've been allowed to do so with an explicit relaxation of those rules. And there's been another 12-month extension of that relaxation, and possibly um, with more to come. And what he's suggesting is that to the extent that there is a fiscal gap that needs filling, um, it should be filled by national governments rather than Brussels, which in a way is, is, a, is a request, a suggestion to people like um, Ireland's own uh, finance minister, Pascal Donoghue, that um, post, as well as doing all the stuff that they're doing, that there is much, much more needed afterwards than any suggestion that we're going to have to be raising taxes, cutting back on spending, balancing the books and all that kind of stuff needs to be shoved way off into the future. What do you think? Well, first of all, can I just ask you, what do you disagree with in terms of that thesis? Well, I think he says that all of this is very well planned in, in the right. sense that the, the big fiscal gap that's opening up between the EU and the Eurozone isn't a big deal in the first place. Um, I think that idea that it's well-timed is pure chance, pure serendipity. I don't think anybody planned for it to be timed in that way. I just think rather than it being there to fill the, 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 the gap that's going to be left when all of these other programs, these national programs start to roll off, I just think that the reason why it's starting in the autumn is that they've just been, as usual, very, very slow, too slow. In my opinion, that 750 billion should be flowing already rather than now. Um, uh, but, you know, that's a timing issue. That's an interpretation yeah. of events issue. But f to say that the gap that clearly is going to exist between the United States and Europe will be filled by national governments 
doing all the spending, doing all the cutting of taxes. That's a hope. Is that a realistic expectation? Uh, no, it's not. And my, my understanding is that at an EU Commission level, that whether it started already or it's it's imminent, I'm not sure, but they are going to be discussing um, reinstating the fiscal rules and the state aid rules. So if if that is the reality, if that's what they're thinking about, um, you know, it definitely flies in the case of what Martin Sandbu was saying. Uh, but I suppose a charitable um, interpretation would be that actually these negotiations will conclude by saying that the fiscal rules will have to remain off the agenda for the foreseeable future. Uh, but I, I still find it very, very hard to believe that the government of Ireland and other governments around the EU, particularly in Northern Europe, will actually go off on a a solo run on the fiscal side. Uh, it, it's, it's just not the nature of how Europe works. So it's, it's very, very hard to see that actually happening. And um, if you also accept that the EU isn't going to step up to the plate, well, that gap between the states and um, the European Union is going to widen further. And we now have, you know, already the speculation in the states is starting to focus in on the three trillion infrastructure and climate change and inequality spending package that Biden is now contemplating. Yeah, so if the, if any or all of that three trillion comes to pass over the next few months, that will just open that very obvious gap that exists already between what the United States and what the European Union is doing. I have said many times already that I don't think enough is being made of what Biden's up to. Because although the, the economics of it are clear in terms of this relief package that he's passed and the um, boost package that he's, that he's um, intending to pass in, 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 over the course of the next year, um, has a political dimension as well. This is, this is him trying to head off populism and trying to persuade enough Trump-type voters to vote for um, uh, him and his party, particularly at the midterms in, in 18, 18 short months' time. You mentioned um, uh, the way in which the rules may or may not change and the Northern European attitudes towards those rules, the fiscally conservative countries of the European Union. Sanbu makes the subtle argument, and I'm not sure whether it's right, that they will find it much easier to swallow expansionary fiscal policy if they think the idea is actually flowing across the Atlantic from what Biden is doing rather than being put to them by the hated European Commission, who always wants to spend money and that it will be more politically palatable, if you like, for them to say, OK, look, this is clearly something that's global. Um, it's a good idea in the States. Maybe it's something we should take another look at. Um, I frankly find that somewhat difficult to believe. I think these fiscal conservatives are what they are, that the leopards are not going to change their spots and they will be arguing for an early rather than a later reinstating of the fiscal rules. In which case, I do think that this problem of the fiscal gap between the US and the European Union is likely to become a, a big issue going forward. But I guess with the changing political complexion in Europe, um, with Angela Merkel about to exit stage left, um, and it's not clear at this stage who will replace her as chancellor following the regional elections in Germany the, um, the, the week before last. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very possible that Germany will actually be led by a much less fiscally conservative politician. So perhaps uh, that will feed into Martin Sandbu's narrative. Uh, but uh, And of course, I think the French would always be 
willing to go along with fiscal expansion anyway. It's it's the way of the French. Of course, the Southern Europeans would as well. Um, the, the Finns, the Austrians, the Dutch probably uh, would have a, a much different attitude to that whole process than much more fiscally conservative. So um, it, it is a very, very interesting debate. And it's one that's going to have a huge, huge impact on the political complexion of Europe over the next couple of years. We could see radical changes, I believe. Yeah, and and um, also for Ireland, because it's quite clear that the um, the economic fiscal strategy of the Irish government is to place themselves really at the centre of what Europe is doing. It doesn't want to be seen as an outlier in either direction. It's had to be in one sense, in that it's, it, it's I think, on average, per capita spending more. It's at the right-hand side of that spending distribution because it's had to. And that's because the, the affected sectors are so important to the Irish economy. Um, in the OECD, um, Ireland is one of the highest concentration of employees in those sectors, the, the entertainment, hospitality, tourist industries, uh, compared to um, all other um, OECD countries. I, I think only Iceland has a higher concentration of people employed in the tourist industry, for example, compared to Ireland. Um, but one of the reasons, of course, why um, the, the fiscal conservatives will continue to beat that drum is um, what actually happens if you lose control of fiscal policy or if it becomes too generous or if it, it just does what they don't want it to, to do. And they will argue that we've got to tighten things up sooner rather than later because of inflation and the, and the threat that inflation will happen as a result of all these particularly government uh, central bank finance debts. And so that brings me on to the third article that uh, really caught my attention this week, and it was in the New York Times, in which um, Neil Irwin, one of their correspondents talked to 10 economists in the States about what they think the future holds, particularly with respect to inflation that may or may not come from all of this fiscal stimulus that Biden is up to. The fact that the New York Times felt moved to do this, to write a big piece, to interview 10 economists on both sides of the debate speaks to a number of things. First, how big a deal it is in the States. And this is the sort of thing that I think the media over here should be paying more attention to because it, it, it will have an impact on the fiscal debate in Europe. It's having a daily impact on financial markets. Financial markets are twitching with every suggestion that the, the inflation is or is not coming in the United States and it's affecting all asset prices. And um, there is a huge economic debate and you've got the peculiar situation in the States where previously centrist sort of neo-Keynesian economists like Olivier Blanchard. He used to be the uh, um, chief economist of the IMF. There's Larry Summers, um, Harvard professor, um, uh, ex-Treasury Secretary of the United States in the Clinton administration, um, being quite anti this fiscal package because they are very worried about inflation. And then you've got Nobel Prize winners like Paul Krugman saying, nah, this is it's, it's going to be fine. There may be a little bit of inflation in the short term, but for all sorts of structural reasons, it will not be sustained. We're not going to have a repeat of the 1970s. So this was, this was again, another fascinating piece that I think is, is, is at the very least, we should be drawing um, people's attention to. Yeah, the title of the, that New York Times piece was The Great Overheating Debate 2021, uh, which is a very striking title. And it's, as you say, it's probably something that we find it difficult to relate to on this side of the water at the moment. And it's also really interesting to see the breakdown of economists on both sides of this argument. 
uh, with with people like um, Larry Summers, who argued in the piece that it's impossible to generate a soft landing. Um, I probably once believed in my career that it was possible, but uh, I was proven very wrong on that one. But that's what Summers is saying at the moment. And he is giving three equal probabilities to what's likely to happen over the next couple of years. One is that it goes according to plan and that you get um, a once-off upsurge in inflation this year and then it levels off in 22 and 23. So that's your soft landing scenario. Uh, secondly, you get caught in a cycle of ever-rising prices, such as happened in the 1970s. And you have to stress that in the 1970s, it was a totally different set of circumstances. You had the breakup of Bretton Woods. You had the um, two oil price shocks in that decade, which really fed into that inflation narrative. And the third scenario would be where the Federal Reserve reacts to a sharp uptick in inflation in 2021 by increasing interest rates and then um, delivers a recession in the economy, higher unemployment to get um, inflation back down again. And from a political perspective, that would really, really be a difficult scenario for uh, the Biden administration, whoever is going to run. I noticed yesterday in his first press conference that Biden was asked the question. He said he will run again in four years time. That remains to be seen. But how this whole uncertainty about overheating and the Federal Reserve and so on and fiscal policy feeds into the political um, cycle will be really, really fascinating to watch over the next couple of years. Yeah, the, the great overheating debate is it, that headline that you mentioned. It, wouldn't it be marvellous if we were having that debate here in Europe about whether or not the European economy was likely to overheat? Chance would be a fine thing. But we're out of time now, Jim, but I, I just wanted to mention one thing. I suspect we will return to it at greater length. But in the spirit of people, of governments looking to sources of extra tax revenues going forward, when eventually they do, hopefully not too soon, think about raising taxes to fill some of these fiscal holes. Uh, I noticed New York State is about to legalize the recreational use of marijuana um, for all sorts of reasons. One very key one being is it's going to raise a lot of money. Um, perhaps we should think about doing that. Your brief thoughts on that? Well, I guess if you look at the tax revenues we raise from tobacco and alcohol, um, are arguably, or at least some will argue that those taxes are in place in order to discourage consumption. The more cynical amongst us would argue that those taxes are in place uh, purely as revenue raising measures. So legalizing recreational cannabis uh, would be totally consistent with that sort of approach. Uh, so personally, you know, I would not have a problem with it. Um, it's, it's being consumed anyway. So if you legalize it, you can actually regulate it more and you can also um, collect tax revenues, which is very important. Um, a final point I would make, Chris, you... And, and, spend, and spend less on prisons. Of course, spend less on prisons. Absolutely. That would be a major positive side effect from that sort of measure. Um, you mentioned Martin Sanbu in the Financial Times and... I would just like to mention um, a superb book that he wrote last year called The Economics of Belonging, which he described as a radical plan to win back the left behind and achieve prosperity for all. So while you may disagree, and we both to a certain extent disagree with Sandbo's pronouncements this week on the EU fiscal situation, he is a serious guy. And I think that book, 
I would recommend to anybody out there interested in this topic. I think that brings us to you, Jim, but I would echo those remarks. It was a magnificent book and anybody thinking of uh, uh, something to read during the ongoing lockdown would be well advised to, to, to go in that direction. Sanbu is, is, I say, a wonderful writer and I've only disagreed with him on this one thing and I suspect it, it, it won't be two things going forward. So thanks very much, Jim. Um, that's it for today and see you again very soon. Yeah, thanks, thanks all for listening. Thanks very much, Chris. Have a great weekend and I would also recommend that anybody would read and listen to your interview and podcast with Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of oh. England. So have Thanks a, very much. Have a good one. Yeah, that, that was that was one of the highlights of my journalistic career in recently interviewing that guy. And, and my interview with him, both in written form and on a, as a podcast, can be found on the Irish Times website. Cheers, Jim. Cheers, Chris. Have a good one. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 